Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our author events at www.skylightbooks.com. At our website, you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. And don't be afraid to follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. Thanks for listening and enjoy. We at Scalia Books are proud to be involved with this launch of this exciting new literary magazine, Slake. Yeah, that's a good time to clap. That's a really good time to clap. Uh, Joe Donnelly, uh, Lori Ochoa, and everyone else involved have created a journal that all of Los Angeles can be proud to say is homegrown. Please help me welcome the editors of Slake, Joe Donnelly and Lori Ochoa. Hi, I'm Lori. This is Joe. Hi, Lori. Um, first of all, we'd just like to thank you all so much for coming out. It means a lot to us to see this type of reception. Um, when we started doing this, uh, a lot of people told us we were... Sorry, excuse me. But hurry up. I can't cover for you for too long. <laughs> you got it? Okay. <laughs> Um, anyway, when we were starting to, to do this, a, a lot of uh, people told us we were crazy. Um, a lot of people. Yeah, a lot of people. Um, yeah, but no, no, no present company. Um, and uh, yeah, we might be. <laughs> Who knows? But if you can't be crazy, what the hell is the point of living? Um, and uh, to see the kind of reception we're getting is really, really means a lot to us. Uh, it's it's uh, it's very 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 moving, and I I appreciate every single one of you who are here. Thank you so much, Lori. <laughs> and we just want to say we just don't want to exist only online. We want to exist in your hands. We want you to hold us, love us, <laughs> take us to bed with you, and um, and uh, and read us, please. <laughs> um, we have a lot of great writers, um, and some of them are in the crowd. And I want to thank all of them who contributed because uh, without you. We are nothing. So thank you. I see Dave White there. I see uh, Erica. Uh, Erica. So um, finally. And uh, Joe, you're going to introduce our first reader? Yes, I am. Right. Okay. Um, the first reader's name is David Schneider, and I had no idea who he was. Uh, just a, I don't, well, I, I, it seems like it's probably been about a year, but it seems like a few months ago. Um, he was introduced to me by, uh, and Lori, by um, a friend of ours and a contributor, uh, Artie Nelson. And he's, Artie, I remember that Artie came into Little Dom's coffee shop, and he's like, oh man, you guys, you sit down, I gotta, I gotta, you gotta, gotta know about this story. And he started unwinding the story that, um, in, in uh, sort of a Cliff Notes fashion, that uh, uh, David had to tell, and which he has shared with us in, in this uh, in this publication. And the story was just amazing. We're like, oh my God, if he can if he can even write uh, C spot run, this is going to be great. And um, we got to know David, and he uh, he turned in uh, he turned in a piece to us that was um, pretty mind blowing. In, uh, in in how the great promise it showed, and um, we worked with him a little bit on it, and uh, uh, the second draft he came back with was uh, really, really, really quite exceptional, and uh, we were we were really overjoyed. Um, one of the things we were most overjoyed about was that we had a chance through this publication to share a new and exciting voice with the rest of the world, and that's uh, as becoming increasingly hard to do, and that's one of the things that we um, are really excited about doing with Slake. So without, are you ready? Without further ado, David Schneider. Hi guys, I uh, just want to thank you guys for coming and um, also thank Joe and Lori for doing the publication and Skylight Books for having us. So. I'm fucked. 
I know it. He's going to find the money. There's no doubt about that. But I figure, as long as I've gone this far, I can't just give myself away. I'm actually more afraid of what might happen to Tom. I think, well, it's not my money. So how much trouble can I get in for it? Tom, the one, Tom is the one who could get in trouble, not me. Then I think about my father, my mother. I think about Amy. I think about all the kids I grew up with who have become lawyers, doctors, teachers, husbands, fathers. I'm about to lose everything, which thankfully isn't very much. So I tell him simply, sure, it'll be mine. The trooper opens the trunk and looks around, and looks around. Inside are two empty suitcases that reek of weed. Both are full of empty baggies, a vacuum sealer, rubber bands, pens, and other garbage. Then he gets to the backpack. Since Tom was paying, I figured I'd buy a nice backpack because once I could get to LA, I would keep it for myself. It had lots of cool pockets, was made of some waterproof Gore-Tex meshy material, and even had a padded compartment in the center, perfect for a laptop. I hear the backpack unzip. Now, I'd covered the money with a pair of shorts. Why, I'm not quite sure. But I see the shorts go up in the air. Trooper Angle says nothing, just reaches for his belt, pulls his handcuffs off, and walks right at me. Come here, he says, motioning with his forefinger. You're under arrest. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you. You have the right to an attorney. He puts the cuffs on tight. Is this money yours, he says. No, I say, calm, numb. Well, how come you said yes before? I shrug my shoulders. I, I don't know. I, I lied. I'm sorry. He says nothing, just looks at me, and I begin to panic. I'm so sorry. Oh my God, I am so sorry for lying to you. I start pacing in circles. Every direction are spectacular panoramas. The land is flat, the air so dry and clean and clear. I can't help but admire the vast and desolate beauty. Stop moving around, he tells me. You stay in one place, understand? But I can't stop. If I stopped even for a second, it would be real, and I'd have to deal with it. I'm not ready for it all to sink in. I still think I can run, still think it might be a joke, still pray it's all a bad dream. He walks at me. I fall to my knees and put my forehead on the ground. The wet bleeds through my jeans. He goes back to the car. I'm not crying, but I'm cursing myself, asking God for forgiveness for every questionable thing that I have ever done or even thought in my entire life. After 14 seconds of reprise, I look up and see that the trooper has emptied the contents of my car all over exit 113. He's having a blast. I get up and walk, to the, walk, in, walk out into the open field off the freeway. Hey, you! This time he comes at me, full, at me fast, full of anger and fear. Didn't I tell you to stay put? He grabs my arm and moves me towards the passenger door of his car. I stumble and fall on the ground. He drags me a few feet until I regain my footing. Just, please, sir, can you, can you just please, can you tell me what's going to happen? That'll be up to the judge, he says. Judge? What, what judge? Sir, the thing is, you have to understand, okay, listen, he says, you need to stop talking. You're doing yourself a real disservice by acting like this. Now you need to let me do my work and just sit tight in my car. You got caught. It's over. The best thing you can do right now is relax. <clears throat> he puts me into the car, my hands cuffed behind my back. Engel goes back to my car and continues his search. I sit in the car. Rex, too, is behind me, his tongue hanging out, breathing in my face, swallowing. The dog ignores me, but I need to talk to someone. I need to talk to Trooper Engel. I try to reach the window button with my hand or elbow, but I can't, so I use my tongue. The window goes down. Sir, I call to him out the window. Hey, he says, I thought I told you not to touch anything. Now you better listen to what you say or your problems are going to get a lot bigger than they are right now. And right now, they are big already. What does that mean? I laugh. Hey, nothing is funny here, he says. He then reaches inside the car and takes out his shotgun. You think I'm going to touch your gun, I say, smiling. This is serious, he says. You're in serious trouble. Are you not getting that? Now, I have no idea what someone as stupid as you is capable of, considering what you've already proven to be capable of. Just then, another cop pulls up to the scene. 
A tall, lanky guy steps out of his car, looks up at the sky, and yells, Yeehaw! He really did that. <laughs> the cop and Trooper Engel talk. The new guy keeps looking at me in the car, his mouth agape. Engel continues to continues the search, and the other guy comes to the car. He opens the driver's side door and talks to me. You really the trunk monkey, he says. <laughs> yes, sir, I say. I like that commercial a lot, he says. Give me a lot of laughs. My boys, too. It's a family favorite. Thank you, I say. I, I really appreciate that. <laughs> You're welcome, he says. You're a funny actor. <clears throat> how, he says, uh, how do you get a job like that? I say, well, you know, I actually have an agent. And uh, he, says, he says, do you now? He says, so how's that work? So what, he gets you jobs? I say, well, she, uh, uh, yeah, but, you know. Um, I mean, she sends me on the auditions, and, you know, if they want to use me, they call her, and she negotiates the money or whatever. <laughs> Interesting, he says. Ingle comes to the car, puts Rex 2 on a leash, and takes him on a sniffing tour of my vehicle. Both cops are now yee-hawing and oo-momming their way around, doing all they can to get Rex 2 barking and worked up. I know that there is nothing left for them to find. Ingle finishes the search, and the other guy takes off without even saying goodbye. Okay, next up is uh, another obscure, relatively unknown writer. Has, has anyone heard of Jonathan Gold? Uh, <laughs> um, hang on, I'm not done introducing you yet. Um, I did, I want to say a special thanks to Jonathan for all his support for this project uh, from the start. It's, uh, it's, it's probably the least remunerative, did I say that right? Uh, uh, least remunerative uh, job his wife has had in about 20 years. Um, and uh, throughout it, he's been uh, awfully gracious to us uh, and lending his time and his support. And particularly, uh, he came up with the name. So. <laughs> okay. No, that's a joke. Um, <laughs> We've had a few differences about it, but um, anyway, we're 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 awfully, awfully, awfully um, proud to have Jonathan in in the um, publication, and we're particularly proud that he is writing off his beat, uh, as it were, a little bit, and a really, really funny, poignant, and uh, and uh, even somewhat sexy uh, piece on fruit. So, here's Jonathan. Thanks. Mind if I use this one? Yeah. Mind if I use this one? No, no, no. Oh, thanks. Have you seen it yet? <laughs> uh, what is this? Like, I, I, I've seen the boxes in my wife's trunk. <laughs> Actually, there's some interesting things about me being married to an editor. Um, you know, having some, somebody nudge you at 3.30 in the morning because she has an idea for a transition. <laughs> Not even in your piece. <laughs> Um, anyway, this is a piece about a painting. I would first suggested doing a piece about uh, the guy who sells pastrami to restaurants in East LA, but she thought that was too obvious, I guess. <laughs> and uh, another thing about what it was like to hear a, uh, a CD of a concert, a punk concert that I went to uh, 30 years ago uh, that includes the sound of me being uh, bashed over the head with a bottle. But apparently that one had been done too. So, uh, fruit. Or fruit at the Norton Simon Museum anyway. Visitors to the Norton Simon Museum, the collections jammed into the corpse of the former Pasadena Art Museum, come to admire the handsome Frank Gehry garden, the shimmering tiles by Edith Heath, and what is probably the most impressive group of Rembrandt paintings on the West Coast. There are Degas ballerinas by the bushel, Rubens by the acre, and Venetian cityscapes sufficient to decorate the parlor of any 18th century earl. Simon or his consultants had a decent eye 
His chronic looks like a chronic, and the Ang portrait is really fine. There may not be much competition, but the Simon is probably the best small art museum in California, and as much as one personally might mourn the superb contemporary art museum that was vaporized to accommodate the ketchup millionaire's dream. As a fact on the ground, the Simon is pretty good. But a casual visitor, somebody there because her guidebook tells her that she should come to have a peek at the Van Gogh, might be puzzled by the institution's apparent emphasis on a painting called Still Life with Lemons, Oranges, and a Rose by Francesco de Zubaran, a 17th century Spanish painter who is unlikely to have come up in the Renaissance art survey class that she got to see in, in sophomore year. The museum's gallery back features the Zubaran on its cover, and the gift shop is stocked with replicas of the painting in every possible size and form. It was the star of the small Norton Simon exhibition in New York's Frick last year, and more to the point, the Norton Simon's galleries are laid out in a way that makes still life almost impossible to avoid. A flash of yellow in a room just off the most glamorous corridor, a magnetic yellow, positioned to distract you from the Botticelli's. When Simon bought the painting in the early 70s, it was the third most expensive old master ever sold. I think it was a stand-in for the Velasquez's that would never hit the auction block. And the $2,725,000 cost, which these days will probably won't get you a postage stamp at an art auction, uh, figured into the allure of what is, after all, a picture of some fruit. Zubaran, the painting's author, was a friend of Velasquez, a childhood friend, and an admirer of Caravaggio. His work, chiefly pious religious scenes, painted for his court patrons in Seville. He worked for monks mostly. As a matter of fact, looking at the Spain-Holland game this morning, um, I was thinking how much the um, wars of the Counter-Reformation were being fought out on the soccer fields instead of the uh, instead of the art galleries, the battlefields. Probably better. His work, chiefly pious religious scenes, is often compared favorably with them both. If you are an aficionado of the way a saint's loose white robe puddles around his ankles, Zubaran is the Baroque era painter for you. But still life is charismatic for a picture of fruit, a three-part composition of nipply oranges, lemons, and an untouched porcelain cup of water on a silver tray. An oddly specific light illuminates the composition. Early morning sun, perhaps, streaming through a window above and to the viewer's left, sharply focused enough to render the left face of the oranges bright and washed out, though the shadows are almost black. The wooden table on which they sit appears to receive barely enough light to do a crossword puzzle. To the right of the oranges, the sunlight glints from the rim of the porcelain drinking cup. A white rose stained pink at its edge glows softly as if illuminated from within. On the left are four lemons. Some are as defined by their, and this is the point where I should probably have a slide behind me, but this isn't an art lecture, it's a reading. Um, on the left are four lemons. Some are as defined by their sunken aerials and proud nipples as a vintage Playboy centerfold. Another lemon in the foreground appears to have the outline of a face with a grudding, jutting, crooked nose. If you squint, it is almost a match for the head of the leathery crone who, who cradles a newborn virgin in another Zubaran painting, mounted a few feet to one side. The rough-skinned oranges, heaped in a finely woven basket, are wreathed with an arrangement of dark leaves and virginal white blossoms that seem less to grow from the fruit than to have descended onto the fruit from heaven. Fruits are pure sex, the naked reproductive organs of a tree. Juicy, plump with fertility, cleft with alluring, syrup-crusted fissures. When we look at Chardin's cherries, or a Saison peach, what we see is possibility. Zubaran's citrus may be the opposite of that. Unviolated, ornamental fruit meant to be admired rather than eaten. There are no crumbs. Not a bite is missing. The lemons are actually citron, whose rind is fragrant, but whose flesh is all but inedible. The oranges, like most in Seville at the time, are almost certainly bitter. This fruit will never be eaten. 
In fact, Zubrin mostly hides the naughty bits of the fruit as completely as Raphael does the genitals on his half-robe saints. Except for a solitary, lovely rented crater, the stem end of the forwardmost of the oranges at the mathematical center of the painting, thrust out quite directly at the viewer, the pucker at the center of the world. Centered between the virginal chalice on the one hand and the voluptuous citrons on the other, the dark, bottomless pucker invites what is sometimes known as the male gaze. The saintly glow of this fruit is indistinguishable from the one on the face of Zubaran St. Francis on the painting next to this, or rather, to that on the skull before which the saint kneels. There are no glints of light on the oranges themselves, no shine, just brilliant rough surface. The fruit has no physical presence. It is impossible to imagine plucking it from its basket, to smell it, to feel the heaviness of its juice in your palm. But you want to. You ache for sensation, driven by its sheer pornographic unavailability. It is no wonder Zuberan's oranges enraptured a millionaire. You don't want to eat this fruit. You want to fuck it. And it's going to hurt. Thank you. People keep telling me I have to watch the oranges around our house. <laughs> so, um, um, most of you know Michelle Hunovan for her novels, um, from Round Rock to Blame, which is amazing. You should buy that, by the way, right now, because it's right after this. Um, um, but I've known Michelle um, before she you know, was, had done her first novel. And uh, she, um, she did restaurant reviews, and she and Jonathan um, were... Uh, um, writing restaurant reviews at the LA Times. And uh, when I had um, our first child, Isabel, um, Michelle took over for me as a food editor at the LA Times. So we go way back. And as we were um, developing Slake, uh, Michelle and I would take walks often on Saturday mornings, and we would talk about this. So I was really, really happy to get Michelle to um, do a story for us in Slake. And it's, it, and it's a really good one. Um, it takes place in Altadena and Pasadena and uh, involves um, mothers and fathers and love and loss and um, Michelle, you should come read. <laughs> Hi everyone. Uh, thank you Laurie for a nice introduction. It's very exciting to be a part of Slake and um, I would hate to duck any opportunity to have Lori be my editor. We go way back and it's always been a happy and thrilling association. Lori always makes you look better than you are. I'm just going to read the beginning of um, my short story, Separation in Slake. Separation. I was in bed with Herbie when the loud knocking started. It was the middle of the afternoon. What the hell, Herbie said, pulling a pillow over his head. We waited for it to stop. It didn't. Maybe my car's blocking your garage, I said. Nodding my bathrobe, I answered the door. My mother stepped into the threshold. I've had it with your father, she said. Hang on just a second, Mom. I mean it, she said brushing past me and into the living room. A short, tanned woman with a cap of mink-brown hair showing just a few glistening threads of white. She pivoted and surveyed my one-bedroom bungalow court apartment. In her hand was a small plaid suitcase. Stay right there, I said, and slipped into my bedroom, closing the door behind me. My mom, I whispered. Herbie yanked on his jeans. There was no question of an introduction. Herbie was too new to my life and far too shy to meet my mother, especially under these circumstances. Go through the bathroom, I said. Sh shirtless, Herbie, all six foot two and 240 pounds of him, scuttled off. Just getting dressed, Mom. 
She opened my bedroom door a crack. I've had it up to here, she said. I'll be right out. I unsnarled bedclothes, thumped pillows. Is somebody in there with you, she asked. No, Mom, I said, and opened the door wide to prove it. What happened in China, Mom? She and my dad had just come back from a 21-day group tour. We were in my dining room and sitting at the pine table I'd bought for $25 at an antique store, my first major furniture purchase. I was 26, a poet, and still living like a student. He wore the same filthy shirt for four days in a row, my mother said. It stank. He didn't change it, even though I begged. And all he could talk about was when he hopped freight trains at 17. It was boxcars and switching yards at every meal. Thirty years ago, those stories were stale. Of course, whenever I tried to say anything, he cut me off, and he criticized me nonstop in front of everyone. He's always been like that, I said. I will, know, I will never go anywhere or do anything with him again. I felt a quick scorch of dread. My mother was 61, which seemed very old to me, far too old to start a new life. Also, she had inoperable cancer, a rare kind of tumor in her liver that was so slow growing, the doctor said that something else would probably kill her first. To be on the safe side, she went in for chemotherapy every four months. When she was first diagnosed five years ago, she and my dad left Pasadena for a retirement community in Carpinteria. They bought one of the smaller apartments because they planned to travel ten months each year. Since then, they had been to England and Scotland, all over Europe, to New Zealand and Australia, and now China. Turkey and Costa Rica were coming up. What about Turkey and Costa Rica? I said. Not going. My mother picked up her suitcase and took it into the bedroom. That's fine, I said. You can sleep in there. It's a big bed, my mother said. I don't mean to dispossess you. The thought of sleeping with my mother filled me with physical revulsion. Her dry, spotty skin, her yellowed toenails. That's okay. I'll sleep in the living room, I said. I had a futon sofa, which I'd intercepted on its way to the dump. She'd done this before. Once, when my sister and I were teenagers, she stormed out of the house and hadn't come back for 36 hours. When I was away at college, she left my dad for a weekend. Both times, she went to her cousin Ginger's house in Claremont, but Ginger had moved up to Puget Sound, and my sister lived in London. That left me in Pasadena at Braithway Court. That first night, I cooked linguine with canned tuna and fresh lemon zest and made a green salad for our dinner. I poured us each a glass of bargain bin Orvieto. For three weeks, I didn't have five minutes away from him, she said. He stuck to me like glue, and he never stopped talking, not for one minute. My father did like to hold forth. His subjects included geology, the Marxist view of capitalism, and his life as a teenage hobo. <laughs> Once, he'd stopped by my apartment when I was giving a dinner party. He took a chair and in the slow drawl of a school science film said, seven million years ago, where we're now sitting was a trough in a deep sea. <laughs> he gave us the entire geological history of the transverse ranges as we ate. Nobody else got a word in edgewise. For dessert, he described the Army Corps of Engineers' flood control systems. <laughs> to this day, if there is an awkward silence or a person is being particularly boring, one of my friends will drawl, seven million years ago. Thank you. Thank you, Michelle. Um, we have a very dapper looking, young Frank Sinatra looking uh, Mark Z. Danieleski here. Um, well, when I first met Mark, he um, was not clean shaven. Um, he was in, uh, we were in Guadalajara for the book fair, um, and I see David Kippen back there. He brought us both there. Um, f uh, the NEA um, flew several Los Angeles writers there. Um, because they were focusing on Los Angeles and um, found out a lot of LA writers didn't know each other. So it was really the great pleasures to meet Mark there. Um, and the reason you, were ha you had your 
you were unshaven is because you were in the middle of writing a novel and um, um, which we're very excited to. The reason and the reason that you don't see the beard anymore, which became quite bushy over the months, um, is that uh, he, you, he's finished the novel. And, but, but because he was in the middle of this, I thought, there's no way we're going to get a piece from Mark um, for Slake. You know, I uh, you know, was you were one of my big hopes to get into Slake, because um, I, I love Mark's writing. Um, it's sort of, when you read a novel by Mark, it's, you can read it narratively, and, and, that's, and it's great, but you can also go back to it almost at any time. And it's sort of what we were hoping with Slake, the whole thing about being on the bedside table and, and being able to look at it. You can look at it, open it anywhere, and find something really interesting um, about anything. Echo, uh, JFK, and, and it's, just, it's just beautiful. Um, so uh, we'd like Mark to come read. Um, you know, Only Revolutions and um, House of Leaves, you, you know him for all those things. But um, now we have a piece in Slake. So thank you, Mark. Thank you, Lori. Actually, for those of you who are um, worried about the beard, what I learned is when you grow a beard to a certain size and you cut it off, it becomes self-sufficient. So it's apparently out there. And if you see it, give it my best. We're still trying to determine what it eats, but apparently on Melrose and Highland it was spotted. And there were a couple of raccoons running away from it, which worries me. Uh, I feel like either the secret's out or everyone here is now sharing a secret that I discovered when I arrived here uh, in Los Angeles back in 1991. Uh, as, as, a, as obsessed and as represented by the world of film uh, that LA is, I noticed immediately the extraordinary literature that was present in this city. I mean, and it's the possibilities for lit literature here. And I can remember going to Largo on Fairfax and listening to uh, these great poets read. And yet no one seemed to be talking about the novels or the books or the poems that were being written here. And, and, and how rich this city is to find, you know, all sorts of themes and music that extend throughout the world. And certainly it's a, it's a great pleasure to be in, in the company of these writers here. Um, you know, Jonathan is just one example of someone who takes just the food in, in this city and brings to life the history of that food, the history of the people, the way the cultures come together, the way they, the way they deviate. And um, so it's a great honor to be part of Slake, uh, which is, I think, finally embracing the, um, the remarkable literature and city that this um, that this place is. So thanks for coming out, supporting this quarterly, and uh, now I'm going to read my very opinionated piece on poetry called The Promise of Meaning in five parts. Part one. Writers who do not read poetry cannot be taken seriously, which goes self-evidently for poets, just as evidently for novelists, philosophers, historians, and perhaps less evidently for jotters of laws, judgments, appraisals, prescriptions, blogs, tweets, text messages, menus, directions, and grocery lists. Without a slow and careful consideration of how words move, form, diminish, connect, enact, deceive, sway, detach, destroy, elude, reattach, imply, fail, obscure, seduce, reveal, relax, undo, hold, tease, estrange and clash, achieve through the patient sounding out of meter and sense the watchful measuring of what inheres and what escapes. Writers can no more know what they mean than what they intend. They will not understand how in what they are writing, they are already written, and therefore have as yet written nothing at all. Words are just words. Poetry is something else. Because poetry is at the heart of the matter. Because poetry is the heart of the matter. Because poetry depends on what we cannot do without. Because poetry defines what we are without. Because poetry defends why without still matters when we're no longer around. Part two. Question. How is it possible to write something and not write anything at all? 
Answer, the same way it is possible to say, let there be peace, or I love you, over and over, and not convey a thing. Question, are you serious about devaluing writers who don't read poetry? Answer, what might indicate any answer to the contrary? Question, grocery lists? Answer, without knowing how to read closely, we cannot say adequately, and therefore can never heed accurately what we need. Question, so people who read poetry eat better? <laughs> Answer, suddenly the possibility is there. Question, and lawmakers? Answer, they will write better grocery lists too. <laughs> Not to mention laws. After all, how can anyone conceive a directive on behavior without a thorough understanding of the material that comprises the very design of that directive? Furthermore, how can the consequences of such a mandate even be effectively assessed? Can the great enterprise of justice on behalf of the living succeed if the potentials and limitations of its own construction go unrecognized? Question. Is poetry then merely the particle physics of expression? Answer. That is the matter, but not the heart of. Part three. I cannot imagine having written House of Leaves without Rilke, You Must Change Your Life, Archaic Torso of Apollo, or Only Revolutions without Dickinson, for I have but the power to kill without the power to die, my life had stood. And Stevens, it is cold to be forever young, to come to tragic shores and flow, variations on a summer day. I may have loved, but would I have understood love's consequences without Virgil? Omni set uno dilapsus calor, atque inventus vita recessit, Aeneid for. Or love's hope without Apollinaire. Comme la vie est lente, et comme l'espérance est violente, le pommier beau. Or love's denial without Donne, for thou art not so, holy sonnet 10. I would have fallen for her anyway, but doubt I would remember her so identically without Crane. And so it was I entered the broken world to trace visionary company of love, the broken tower, or know her still so intimately without Graham. They're flowers because they stop where they do, the strangers. I cannot see sustaining the reckless engagement with life's infinite propositions without Milton. In the lowest deep, a lower deep still, paradise lost for, or endure its dereliction without Whitman. I too am but a trail of drift and debris as I ebbed, or greet its vicissitudes with anything close to a smile without Chaucer and in he throng the merchant's tale, let alone suffer its misreadings without Keats. Forget what thou among the leaves hast never known, ode to a nightingale. To experience the intense requires a language confident in its calmness, while to live without language is to forfeit life's gift, as to live without awareness is to forfeit life's meaning. Meaning, after all, is what survives, but what survives only offers the promise of meaning if it can perish, or fail, or at least fall. During that blur of time before I turned eight, when the outdoors increasingly offered the chance of unrestricted investigation, my father's recitations of Shakespeare still intrigue me most. For in the very torrent tempest, and as I may say, a whirlwind of your passion, you must acquire and beget a temperance that may give it smoothness. Hamlet 3, scene 2. During my freshman year, when music blared loud, it was Eliot in a black lipstick scrawl on a dorm room wall who proved the loudest. I will show you fear in a handful of dust, the wasteland. And of those days between desks and debt, requirement and request, whether at a bus station or park or coffee shop or encampment on a friend's sofa, Hollander, are you done with my shadow? Kitty, Bishop, this is the house of Bedlam, visits to St. Elizabeth. Merrill, a new voice now? The changing light at Sandover, Rambo, je me suis armé contre la justice, une saison en enfer, Tennyson, the gods themselves cannot recall their gifts to Thonis, Blake, immediately go out, auguries of innocence, Auden, dismantle the sun, stop all the clocks, and Wordsworth, was it for this, the prelude, gave voice to what thirst and hunger nightly threatened to digest. 
And now in years more recently traversed, when political challenges increasingly demand the philosophical, and the pedestrian scheduling of taxes and travels encounters the unanticipated shocks of death and solitude, Hill, to have lost dignity is not the same as to be humble, the triumph of love. Zimborska, the panther wouldn't know what scruples mean in praise of feeling bad about yourself. Stanford, blood come out like hot soda, the singing knives. Oliver, hurrying day after day, year after year, through the cage of the world. Mountain Lion on East Hill Road, Austerlitz, New York. And Telford, what bores an angel more, violence or beauty? at the theater. Grant prominence to that miracle limit where even the unexpected conclusion is unended by a rarer and revitalized telling. Four, what was that all about? Five, scene, Luke, time, after closing, cast, your usual strangers. Gustav, writers who don't read poetry can't be taken seriously. That goes for poets, novelists, jotters of laws, grocery lists, and Ivan. Text messages, Octavio menus, Lorraine eviction notices, Vanessa, dear Gustav, what about love letters? Vanessa and Gustav are falling in love, but they will never get together in a play or a novel if only they could live in a poem. But who will write it? Not I. A fast rattle of dialogue ensues, defending and denouncing the values of various poets, ranging from Plath, Lowell, Byron, Frost, Millay, Baudelaire, Pound, Cummings, Miwash, Paz, Williams, Yang, and Mallarmé, to Hughes, Shelley, Nash, Wilbur, Sappho, Hicks, Neruda, Herrera, Yeats, Basho, Perillo, Ashbury, and Keyes, along with splashes of lines like, if truth is beauty, what of an ugly truth? I will show you love in a handful of dust. I will show you an allergen. Man at the bar, who are you people? Vanessa, good question. Finally, Ivan, and what of writers who don't read poetry at all, but still manage to produce volumes of verse? Should they be taken seriously? Gustav, they should be shot. Man at the bar runs away. Lorraine takes advantage and finishes his drink. She's drunk again. Lorraine. Is serious even so important, Gustav? Without it, levity also departs. Ivan, always so clever. Lorraine, clever isn't funny. I'm not smiling, Gustav. I'm leaving. And I'm not smiling, and I haven't laughed once. Seriously. But Lorraine doesn't leave. Gustav and Vanessa do. Lorraine gumps, gulps down her unfinished drinks. Octavio laughs and falls off his stool. He's drunk as well. Lorraine's laughter turns to snorts. They both end up on the floor. Lorraine and Octavio are not in love, but they get together all the time. They don't need to live in a poem. They are happy. Tomorrow morning they won't remember a thing. Well, that's not true. They will remember things, but only vaguely. Meanwhile, Ivan's fast asleep, dreaming of Russian faces. Vanessa, and how will we say goodnight this time? Gustav, as we always do. Vanessa, but will they be the same words? Gustav, never. Vanessa, promise me. Gustav, I promise you. Thank you. Wow. Um, so one thing about that beautiful piece is uh, it, it wouldn't exist in the way um, Mark wanted it to exist uh, in any other medium than this. Uh, the presentation of it is as meaningful and powerful to him and to your experience, and he took as much care with that as he did in crafting that, that truly, truly beautiful, amazing piece. When, uh, when I read that, I remember saying to Lori, holy shit, I quit. No. <laughs> um, but it's, uh, um, it's, I think it's, uh, it's, it's a great example of, uh, of why we call this still life. There's, there's still life in, in this type of um, format. There's still life in beautiful printed uh, tactile 
material and uh, we uh, we hope you guys uh, um, continue to support this. Lori, you want to, I want to thank uh, our readers, of course. Come on out, David Schneider, Michelle Honovan, Mark Z. Danielewski, and Jonathan Gold, thank you. Lori. Um, we will have, there are books for sale. Uh, I think some of these guys are going to hang around and, and sign. But uh, we also wanted to know if anyone has any questions uh, before, we, before we get to the books and the stuff. Anybody have a question for anyone up here or even for yourselves? Turn to the person next to you and ask a question. <laughs> well, okay. Um, yeah, it's all it's all self-explanatory. But please take some water and coffee. Cost me a lot of money. <laughs> okay. Nobody. Oh, there's a question. Oh. Um, we we plan to keep opening it up to to new writers, but also um, there'll, there'll be some writers that will appear in, if not the next issue, the one after it. Uh, you know, it's it's we just want it to be a, a really nice uh, home for the amazing talent here in Los Angeles to radiate out into the world. So, thank you. Yes, Iris. Iris Barry, ladies and gentlemen, also one of our contributors. Thank you. <laughs> Great. Um, awesome, amazing readings. Everyone was amazing, and the book you covered was amazing. And I can I go? Can I go, Phil Donahue, on this? How, how long did it actually take to put this issue together? Uh, Laurie, how long did it take? Uh, I think we started in earnest. Um, That's September. Yeah. But we, you, you know, you know, Joe, and we've been talking about this for a long, long time. So we, um, uh, I mean, we really started in earnest on the issue in September, but it's been a long, long process thinking about it. Yeah, this is the. We've been developing this idea for a, a very long time, and. Um, a little, we've had a lot of different advice on, on how to approach it and um, none of it particularly resonated as something that would actually come to fruition. It all seemed like the type of thing that you'd wait around forever to have happen or you'd need someone to give you permission to do, someone with money, I guess. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, eventually we just said screw it. Uh, let's just do what we can with what we have and, and get this out in the world and, and, and see see what the response is and uh, and I, you know we've been overwhelmed and again thank you <coughs> oh, there's another question yes Yeah, if you think these cookies cost a lot of money. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it seemed to indicate that this was also uh, the inauguration of a publishing, of a book publishing company. We, I think that was implied. Uh, we hope so. Uh, we have, um, Lori and I have, have um, a lot we'd like to do with what we're trying to get started here. And, you know, um, I, I'm sorry, I'm hogging the mic. I'll get, but w one, of the, one of the things we want to do is continue to um, offer uh, a, a place where Los Angeles can, uh, you know, determine its own destiny in this world instead of having to go through the filter of New York. And, you know, uh, it, there's, it's, it's too smart, there's too many talented writers, there's too many great voices here uh, to, to not have our own, you know, if it was music we'd call it a scene, you know, but, uh, you know, we, we hope to be able to try and develop something like that, and we will. We will, damn it. We just got this one out, so that we'll, we're working on the second issue, so we'll get that out and then, and then books and more, so. Yeah. yeah.
Anybody else? You may not have M Michelle and Mark and Jonathan captive again for our until our next reading. No. So. <laughs> All right. Okay. Uh, is that, oh yes. Um, it, yeah. It's loosely. It's crossing over, um, and uh, we think that gives uh, enough room to play with as well. Um, yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. The books are talking. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I was just asked if I'd monitor my cholesterol. <laughs> and, and all I can say is it's a grand thing to write about food in the age of Lipitor. <laughs> Ask your doctor if it's right for you. Anybody else? Now that I got the mic loose, I really want to do the Phil Donahue thing. Is it? Okay. If you all buy one, it'll be Let's let's turn it over to Scott. Steve. 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 The book is selling really well. Actually, we just got a bunch in, and we sold. I was afraid we weren't going to have enough for this reading, and I'm not really sure we do. Actually, looking at all these faces out here, um, but we do have them here for sale, and it has been selling really great. Is there any more questions for these guys while we're up here? Yeah, I have a question. Okay. Why did Lori tell me your name is Steve? Steve. Scott. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think what we're going to do is we're going to stop the reading part of this night, and we're going to go into the signing portion. So what I would like everybody to do is to give these guys another round of applause for this amazing event. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Ashley and Arlo. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, or at the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.